From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Thank you for downloading this podcast, especially you on the bus staring out the window. This week, we're talking FedNow finally launches in the US, um, a really exciting and long-awaited initiative in the US to try and broaden out access to real-time payments. We've got a local market expert to help us understand you know, the, the pros and cons of this and, and what we think it still needs to do to, to really drive change in the US as a whole. Dame Alison Rose steps down as NatWest CEO. Um, a big story here in the UK about the kind of overlap of, of politics and, and finance. We we talk about the wider implications um, and also kind of the legacy of, of Alison Rose as kind of one of the like leading female leaders in the banking industry. And the Chicken McNugget is 40 and now available in the metaverse. A lot of very excitable chat about chicken nuggets and all sorts of other fun foods. So we get into all this and much more on today's show. So let's get to it. But first, a few brief messages. Back shortly. Fintech Insider community, we need your help. The 11FS Awards returns on Wednesday, 15th of November, and we will be celebrating the people and businesses from across the globe who are helping to move the industry forward. This is where you come in. Do not miss your chance to influence who takes home an 11FS Awards trophy, whether they're trying to make the world a better place for their customers, changing the game for businesses, or utilizing AI to improve their customer experience. We want you to tell us who is building the best stuff. Submit your nominations right now at 11fsawards.com. That's 11fsawards.com. Welcome to episode 765 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some exciting guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, very excited to be joined by my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research and Strategy. How are you, Benjamin? Fresh back from holiday? What, what, apart from holidaying, what's been keeping you busy recently? Hello, Kate. Uh, yes, I have been away, which is great. Always good to recharge batteries. I thoroughly recommend holidays. Um, I've plunged back into a ton of work we're doing on commercial banking and looking at how sort of digital commercial banking is evolving. We're also doing some really interesting innovation sprints um, with one of our customers in, in some totally different areas, uh, which is great because I just love being stretched on very, very different topics and talking to customers because you always learn from talking to people. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can be stretched whilst also sporting an excellent tan, then that's just a double win. So so you're nailing it at the moment. Congrats. Um, we also have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Janae Eo, Director of Financial Policy at Chamber of Progress. Thanks for joining us, Janae. Can you tell our newer listeners a bit about you and the Chamber of Progress, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me today. My name is Janae Eo. I'm the Director of Financial Policy. I previously worked in the U.S. House of Representatives with Financial Services Committee under Congresswoman Joyce Beatty. Uh, Chamber of Progress is a tech policy coalition promoting technology's progressive future in the U.S., and I work on the emerging technology space and financial services, including fintech and crypto. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us. We're looking forward to getting your take on the news today. And last, but definitely by no means least, we have another return for Ollie Betts, Fintech Sector Director at Founders Factory. Welcome back to the show, Ollie. Great to have you on. We'll get to your news in a little bit, but can you give our listeners the top line on yourself and Founders Factory, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kate. It's great to be back on Fintech Inside. It's been a while. Um, I've been on the show before as a fintech founder. But now it's exciting to be back as a fintech investor. Um, for those of 
listening that don't know me, yeah, I'm MD of FinTech at Founders Factory. I help founders build and scale FinTech startups. Um, at Founders Factory, we invest in talented founders and diverse founding teams that are building exciting things globally. Uh, we've got a current focus on FinTech, health, climate, connectivity, and Web3. Um, and we've built and invested in over 300 businesses. Um, we operate in London, Milan, Berlin, New York, Singapore, and Johannesburg. So it's great to be here. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Great to have you back. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story we've taken from Reuters, but it's been covered in lots of places. Fed launches long-awaited instant payment service modernising the system. The US Federal Reserve has launched a long-awaited service which will aim to modernise the country's payment system. The FedNow service, which has been in the works since 2019, will seek to allow everyday Americans to send and receive funds in seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This will bring the US in line with countries including the UK, India, Brazil, as well as the European Union, where similar services have existed for years. FedNow is launching with 41 banks and 15 service providers certified to use the service. Janae, obviously great to have you on to help us explore this in more detail. So exciting, if FedNow's launched, does anything feel different straight away with payments? What, what's changed from day one? Um, well, I would say things haven't changed quite yet. Um, I know FedNow just launched this month and there are just a few banks that are participating from large banks to smaller banks in the United States. Um, just to take note, the U.S. has over 4,000 banks, so less than 1% of banks are using this service so far. Another thing is in order to use FedNow, um, both of the banks from the sender and the receiver have to be participating in FedNow. So it can be tricky if you're sending money from a big bank to a credit union and one is in, enrolled in FedNow and the other isn't. Um, so I would say it's it's a little bit of a slow rollout so far, but it definitely has some promise over the next few years. Yeah, I think that's a really key distinction, both in terms of like the size of, of the ecosystem, which some of our international listeners, I'm sure, will understand we might not have top of mind, but also, as you say, like the dependency on, on both sides of the of the of the payment. So I suppose you know, you've talked about you know, this being like an important first step, but how big of a deal is this within the U.S. context? Well, I think it's it's a really big overhaul. I mean, if you think about it, our, our current uh, payment system, Fedwire, is over 100 years old. And Automated Clearinghouse has only been around since the 60s. So this is like a really big shift in technology when it comes to banking. So very, very exciting for the United States. Yeah. Obviously, this has come down from the, the Fed itself, kind of from the government level. What's been the reaction from the financial services industry itself, from banks and, and from people within the system? Well, I would say as a, you know, over as an overview, the industry has really embraced FedNow. Um, you know, I know a lot of people have complained about how timely um, it's been because it's, you know, it's taken some time for the Federal Reserve to kind of get this product together. But, you know, I think for the most part, industry is very supportive of it. At first, big banks were a little apprehensive about using a real-time payment system, but they've kind of got on board with, um, you know, some of the other competitors in this space. I know the Clearinghouse has their own version of real-time payments that's currently being used. Um, and then you also have a blockchain technology and, you know, a proposed CBDC that would also kind of be not similar to FedNow, but competitors to FedNow. Um, so you've seen a lot more industry leaders embracing FedNow with all of these other competitors in the space. Yeah, it's definitely a really interesting dynamic to have that mixture of like central government stuff, but also things that have come you know, from the sector itself, from, from the private sector. Has it been, like I know whenever there's any kind of debate in the US about sort of stuff that comes from government and stuff that kind of comes from business, it can be a bit sensitive politically. Like, has this been a politically sensitive issue 
in the States? Um, I would say like kind of on the fringe, you know, Americans love a good conspiracy theory. I'm just just thinking about this week, there was a UFO hearing in the Senate Space Committee. Um, so, you know, I, I think like with people who are running for president, you know, there's been some murmurs about how FedNow is like this is a CBDC. Um, I know RFK, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he's been talking about, you know, how now is a conspiracy. And, um, you know, you have uh, Ron DeSantis, who's also saying that, you know, he's very anti-CBDC, but FedNow is not a CBDC. Uh, CBDC is a currency and FedNow is a payment rail. Um, so they're totally not the same. Um, but yeah, definitely a lot of misinformation for people who are just looking for attention to me personally, but, you know, they're really looking for voters. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think yeah. when I was when I was googling this, like doing my own research, I think maybe like the third or fourth search result that came up was like a YouTube video about like Fed now conspiracy. So it kind of <laughs> makes sense, right? Like as soon as you have anything at this scale, people are going to look to try and try and elicit those kinds of reactions to it um, as well. Benjamin, how how equivalent is this to the rollout of PSD two in the EU? Obviously, as Janae said, like you know we've got over four thousand banks in the in the States, I think it's probably a similar, maybe slightly more than that in the EU, right? But it's it's a couple at a more similar scale to think about this versus the EU versus an individual country like the UK, for example, in terms of the scale. I would say it's not at all like the rollout of PSD2 in the European Union for a variety of reasons. Firstly, PSD2 is much, much wider in scope. Secondly, PSD2 is a mandate, right? So PSD2 mandates actions by by banks. There is no mandate um, behind FedNow. Thirdly, PSD2, of course, is being rolled, you know, has been rolled out across 20 plus countries, 27, 28, whereas FedNow is just one country. So it's really much more equivalent to things like you know, the, the new payments platform in Australia or maybe arguably elements of UPI in India, or faster payments in the UK, or frankly, what Japan did in 1973. I mean, I think what's interesting here is American exceptionalism. You know, America takes a very different approach to regulation to many other countries. You know, there is a lot less government mandating, a lot more private sector emphasis. But in this particular case, you know, it's taken the United States 50 years longer than Japan to get real-time payments in place. And as Janae actually rightly said, Real-time payments already exist in the States because of the um, RTP system operated by the clearinghouse. So it's not even (laughs) the first real-time payment systems in the States. So I think think this is very dissimilar to PSD2. I think what's interesting here is, to Janae's point, only a few banks are on board. For this system to work, you've got to get lots of the banks on board. So the risk for the United States and the, the US economy is that unless people can persuade the banks to get on board you know, nobody can use this system. So, you know, there's a potential tragedy here where having finally got a system in place, do the banks actually embrace it to actually deliver better experiences to their customers? Yeah. And I think I saw a survey by, I think, Cornerstone Advisors, which admittedly was with like a relatively small number of banks within like the whole ecosystem, I think about 300. But that was sort of showing that I think less than half of the banks surveyed and around sort of 42% of the credit unions surveyed only... It was only those types of numbers that were expecting to be able to offer real-time payments by the end of this year. And around a quarter just didn't have a clue at all about when it would be in place. So definitely it's not going to be something that changes the whole system instantly. And I think some of those concerns you raised, Benjamin, are absolutely right. Um, Ollie, how important is it to grant startups access to these services too? Because we're talking about banks and community banks and credit unions, but obviously we know that fintechs and startups are a huge part of the ecosystem too in the states yeah i think it's massively important to achieve adoption i guess if it makes sense to start 
with the incumbent banks, I think in terms of rollout, you know, they're the ones that are going to have to invest the most in the infrastructure or the kind of configuration to to make this work. So it makes sense to start there. And I think we've already been saying, actually, it's a bit of a catch up situation for the US really compared to other geographies. So it makes sense to start there and then move towards sort of catching up. But I think to maximize value for the end users and for consumers or corporate use cases, you know, you're going to need to see startups and challenges having access to the new payment rails. So as we've talked about, kind of there's massive differences or it's not really comparable to PSD2 from a implementation or even policy perspective. But I do think there's some read across or some learnings we could take from PSD2 where the new rails themselves in Europe were sort of just the start of innovation or the kind of foundational platform that would enable innovation. And it was actually then fintechs, challenger banks, neobanks, identifying opportunities to use the new payment rails to create new customer experiences that drove real value. And then it's kind of a, hopefully then a bit of a uh, kind of self-fulfilling effect of better use case, more value unlocked for consumer, more demand, more usage, more more kind of appetite for banks to join to, to make the kind of um, unlock all the value of, of, of the rail. So I think really the, the next phase, I guess, for Fed now will be how do we certify fintechs and neobanks because i assume the certification level required for banks is a significant piece of work and quite high so how do you start to kind of reduce those barriers to enable uh, the wider fintech ecosystem challenger banks to to leverage the rails and then drive innovation that way so hopefully we'll see kind of a few phases of innovation here but yeah the, the main takeaway for me as a participant in psd2 was actually the innovation came from fintechs using a new payment method to create better consumer experiences that then kind of make it all worthwhile and then kind of get the volume flowing through the rails. So I think that will have to happen. Um, it makes sense to start here. And I suspect it's the start like PSD2, right? We're kind of multiple years into that journey before we start to really see the the impact kind of on our everyday lives. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really smart point. Um, Janae, I suppose one thing I couldn't quite work out when I was reading about this was like the commercial structure of of this right like how how much will this will this cost banks to use like how is this going to be structured like commercially do you think yeah so it's it's not going to be a cost to the consumer because it's a bank it's a banking product um or not a product a service rather but banks are going to have to pay um it's free until the end of this year i want to say but then starting next year uh each bank has to pay 25 dollars a month per routing number that they have affiliated with their bank so for some banks, you know, banks are businesses too. And so they have to think about, you know, whether or not using this service is, you know, cost efficient. And then, you know, just to speak to, you know, the fintechs uh, also, you know, partnering with banks to use this service or to access this service rather, um, you know, fintechs and other neo banks, they really do partner with medium sized regional banks in the United States. They tend to uh, partner with them the most. And so, you know, just the service is going to be able to enhance the ability for medium-sized banks to compete with the bigger banks that we have that are, you know, already opting into FedNow. But I will note by saying that not all of the big banks in the United States have opted into FedNow as of yet. Yeah, no, I think definitely as you know, with many stories that we cover as they break, right, this is this is just the first, the first stepping stone. But yeah, it's been a long time coming. A ton of work has gone into it. So Let's keep our fingers crossed that, that this can help to kind of drive innovation forwards in the States. Absolutely. I don't think enough has been done. 
I think this is going to really struggle because you've got to make it super, super easy for the banks to embrace it. And to you know, the point you were making, Ollie, it's got to be open to the fintechs, etc. I don't think there's enough momentum behind this. I think this risks falling flat on its face. Unfortunately, I, I wish that I didn't. I wish I didn't think that. I think there's a big danger this completely fails. And we've seen new payment systems in other markets fail to take off because it's too difficult for the banks to implement or too difficult for customers to use. I don't think anything like enough work has been done here. So anyway, hopefully I'm wrong. It's uh, as you say, like. It's a really, really difficult system to change. And, yeah. and there's tons of stuff, as you've said, that's already working. So yeah, let's let's watch this space. Okay, I'm going to move us on to our next story. Um, also a really important story. So this one we've taken from Sky News, but again, has been covered in multiple different places here in the UK. NatWest boss Alison Rose resigns over Nigel Farage bank account leak. NatWest chief executive Dame Alison Rose has resigned after admitting to being the source of an inaccurate story about Nigel Farage's bank account. Her four-year tenure as chief executive at one of the UK's biggest banks has ended after her admission that she had discussed Mr Farage's bank details with a BBC journalist. Dame Alison had come under mounting pressure from the Prime Minister's office, the UK Chancellor and other senior politicians to resign, with the reporters told there were significant concerns over her conduct. 19 bank chiefs were called to attend a Treasury summit after reports that some businesses have had their accounts closed with no explanation. Mr Farage, the former leader of the UK Independence Party and a Brexiteer, reported in early July that his Coots account had been closed and said he'd not been given a reason. The BBC reported that it was closed because he no longer met the wealth threshold for the private bank, citing a source familiar with the matter. It has since apologised for its inaccurate report. Benjamin, this is a huge story for the UK financial services sector. I mean, rights or wrongs with the BBC leak aside, what is Alison Rose's legacy as the NatWest chief executive? Do you know, I actually don't think it is a huge story for the UK financial services sector. I think it's a political story. Um, I don't really see the fintech angle necessarily. I think it was a huge story when Alison was appointed in 2019. You know, so 40 years after the UK got its first female prime minister, we got our first female chief executive of a major bank. That was huge, right? 40 years. It took 40 years to get from a female prime minister to a female chief executive. That was huge. So I think her departure is just sad. It's a real shame. She made a mistake. You can't breach client confidentiality. She's made a mistake. She's had to, you know, fall on her sword or whatever. Um, I think that's a shame. To your point, Kate, about sort of her legacy, I think I think Alison Rose was doing a fantastic job championing for women in senior positions. She was doing a fantastic job uh, championing for sustainability and for a whole bunch of other you know well needed initiatives. I think she was a very competent, uh, you know, retail focused chief executive, providing a role model for lots of younger uh, younger women in banking and indeed you know younger men too. So I think it's incredibly sad. And I also think it's a political dis- distraction. You know, we've got. You know, large parts of the northern hemisphere burning, you know, on fire from climate change. We've got Russia blocking the export of grain from Ukraine, which is going to lead to millions of people starving around the world. And we're discussing one rich man having his bank account closed. I think it's really sad. So I think Alison was great. I think it's very, very sad. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a it has definitely spiraled in the media. And I guess depending on your 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 views, you can hypothesize as to why that is. I suppose, you know, Undoubtedly, it is a big change both for NatWest and Coots, right? Like as we're you know, talking about this today, it's also emerged that the Coots chief executive has resigned. So this is having a big, a big fall up in the UK space. You know, where do you think NatWest and Coots go from here, Benjamin? Regardless of like whether it's a story that justifies the media hype or not, like it's still a big change for those two organisations, right? 
It's, it's always unsettling for businesses when you lose you lose leaders. You know, NatWest, which was formerly known as Royal Bank of Scotland, you know, had some very difficult leadership in the past that had taken the, the business in a very bad direction. I think the business has been working really, really hard to recover from that. Alison Rose was a big part of that. Um, so it's hugely disruptive. I mean, you know, this is this is extremely unfortunate uh, for NatWest. There's lots, so many great people in NatWest trying to do great work for their customers. This is a big setback. Um, it's a huge shame that she got forced to resign for political reasons. She breached client confidentiality. You can't do that. It's a great shame that she had to resign because it will it will set NatWest back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Janae, obviously, we've talked about Alison Rose's role in the UK system being the first female chief executive of one of the UK's big four banks. You know, how does that representation picture look in, in the US? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a lot of women that are, you know, really killing it when it comes to, you know, leading banks, you know, thinking about, you know, American bankers, they do a profile every year on, you know, the most powerful women in banking. And there's, you know, every year I see women who are president and CEO of banks, they may not be the Wells Fargo's of the world, but they, you know, they're holding their own in their regions. Um, they're they're really doing the work. You know, just thinking about this story, it reminds me of um, the whole situation with J.P. Morgan Chase and Kanye, you know, when J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, closed Kanye's accounts. And even though, you know, Jamie Dimon didn't comment on, you know, why, and he didn't, you know, share, you know, information about Kanye's personal accounts, I think one thing that really stood out to me um, during that whole situation was how uh, J.P. Morgan Chase said that successful partnerships are rooted in mutual respect and shared values. So if a bank doesn't really see that, you know, they want to continue business with somebody as they see fit, that's that's totally, I feel like it's definitely their right to terminate that relationship, but to disclose information about someone's personal account, obviously violating that client confidentiality is, is not okay. But when it comes to, you know, women in this space, you know, actually most women um, that are in banking, you know, leadership, like executives, they're they're definitely leading credit unions. Uh, there was a recent study from the Credit Union National Association that said that 51% of credit unions have female, female CEOs. Um, so women are really leading and they're they're setting legacies in this space. Um, definitely not a setback to see her leave, um, obviously for the, the reasons that she you know, violated client confidentiality. But I feel like with having more women in this space as executives and C-suite leaders, I think you know there's definitely a lot more room to grow. And I feel like you know, our leading banks have done a lot with, you know, uh, retention and recruitment and uh, mentorship with women that are interested in in going that route in banking. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've I know quite a few people who, who work at City in the US, and I've I've heard lots of positive things about the work that Jane Fraser is doing, in particular at, at City. So, um, as you said, like really great to kind of spotlight the the role that these women are playing in driving the industry forward. I suppose from my perspective, like I think the fact that you. Know, Alison is departing in the same year that Anne Bowden is stepping down from Starling. Just like the combination of the two feels like a really, really tragic situation. Like to have two women that were holding those positions of of leadership and and you know, by most accounts doing really great things and and creating kind of really powerful change within their organisations. I think it's um a massive loss. You know, as as a woman working financial services, it was. A, it was really inspirational just to me personally to kind of see what they were both doing. Um, you know, Alison Rose in particular, you know, she you know, she was a chief executive. She was also a mum. Like I think there's the, there are these things that sometimes people don't don't appreciate to kind of know that you can you can be juggling multiple different things and, and still strive to kind of keep progressing. You can do career. it all. Yeah, I mean maybe you yeah. can't do it all all the time, but you can certainly kind of try try your best and and kind of push forwards. Um, Ollie, I'm sure like 
and I know that you guys at Founders Factory do a lot to support female founders and business leaders. You know, do you do you think representation in these levels is a is a fact to them? Does it does it matter? Yeah, I think it's massively important. Yeah, we we do do a lot. Founders Factory really committed to supporting female founders. Um, half of our investments are in female founders. Um, I think that representation at the top level is hugely important. You know, we all need inspiration. Benjamin mentioned role models. You know, Alison really was a role model for lots of people. I'm really lucky. One of the key corporate partners that I uh, work very closely with at Founders Factory is Aviva. And so I'm fortunate enough to work with Amanda there, who's a real inspiration um, to, to lots of founders, uh, female and more generally. So um, I think it's just massively important. I think we know we need to continue working on this. It's um, always probably been uh, specifically difficult in fintech to get that representation at leadership level, but also in founders. I mean, a lot of the work we do and the reason we do it is because we believe if we can focus on supporting female founders at the very early stages of their business, which is where we invest and where we build, then we can start to improve representation there, which then uh, we're sort of the start of the funnel through to later stage VC funding. And then as those companies scale up, I think you have to sort of obviously be working across this at every stage. But you know, we're really passionate about supporting female founders in those very first days of their business. And then hopefully we can increase the number of female founders that are then put in front of VCs for further funding, increase the chances they scale and, and inspire other people. So it, it, I, I think it's really a shame and quite sad, as Benjamin said, for political reasons that Alison's had to step down. And as you highlighted with Anne as well, then we're kind of losing role models but we need some more and there's so many out there so hopefully there'll be more good news to share soon as people step up um because it is just so important yeah fingers crossed well said yeah i mean benjamin obviously nigel farage is trying to make this kind of like a political issue as you said and you're trying to make it a kind of culture wars woke thing but i mean if you park that if there's still this underlying question of you know, should banks retain the right to close the accounts as janae said like this has happened in the states you know do banks have the right to close people's accounts if if you don't align with their views. So there was a very interesting US Supreme Court decision at the end of June, which is called 303 Creative versus Ellenis, which essentially said that it is okay for businesses in the United States to discriminate against people if if the owners of that business don't agree with the beliefs of, of, of the customer. Um, I think this in particular one was about a, a, a sort of wedding or something of, 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 of two people of the same gender. But So you've got an interesting distinction here between what's going on in the States where the Supreme Court is saying actually it is okay for businesses to discriminate and the UK where the government is coming in and saying, you know, you can't discriminate. I think the challenge for banks is that certain politically exposed persons, you know, like sort of Nigel Farage or whoever, are potentially people who might get bribed. They are, you know, politically exposed. We have seen a number of instances in many countries around the world where people, particularly on the sort of extreme left or extreme right, are maybe more prone to taking donations from foreign governments or foreign sponsors and so on. And so that does actually create a lot more headaches for banks, that there's a lot more sanctions monitoring work they've got to do, there's a lot more money laundering, etc., because some of these politicians, particularly the sort of more extreme politicians, are sometimes, and I'm not suggesting that Nigel Farage has done this, but but it is more complicated when you have someone political. It does create work for banks because banks have to comply with sanctions monitoring, anti-money laundering, know your customer, etc. So there is more work involved in it. Um, but I do actually agree with the position that you, you shouldn't discriminate against customers based on their political 
beliefs, you know, Nigel Farage is, you know, not a terrorist, you know, he's not never suggested killing anyone or anything like that. You know, so to discriminate against him purely because you don't like his views is, I think, not really justified. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting question for Coots in particular. And again, for, you know, our non-UK listeners like Coots is, isn't like a main high street bank, right? Like it's a bank that is focused on serving like the affluence. So they're already sort of discriminatory by by nature, right? In that you have to hold a certain amount of of, of money for them to even consider you as a customer. So I do think it's a really interesting. I feel like there should definitely, but definitely is like the right to be banked at a kind of wider level and the, the right for you to have access to financial services. But we already have permission for people to exclude on the basis of, of wealth. So I, I really struggle to kind of see it in that kind of black and white sense when it comes to these more niche banks, the banks that focus on just very specific subsets of of customers. But um, we're seeing, you know, Coots kind of coming up go in for a lot of change as well, like their chief executive is changing. So it'll be interesting to see how they emerge from this and if they kind of have to reposition themselves in terms of the exclusivity that they have in the market generally. Um, Anyway, I'm sure we could talk about this for the entire show, but we've got other stories to cover as well. So we're just going to take a quick pause here, but we'll be back very shortly. 200 trillion. No, that's not the number of times we've heard the letters AI this year. That's the estimated dollar value of residential property worldwide. The opportunity is massive and the space is ripe for disruption. So why does financial services keep getting mortgage offerings so wrong? Digitizing outdated processes has only led to complex, opaque and exhausting user journeys that make the prospect of buying a home even scarier. The answer to this problem? Understand your customers' jobs to be done and meet them at their pain points with embedded, truly digital solutions. Partner with businesses to simplify and accelerate the home buying process. That's where the future is. Ready to take the first step? Visit 11fs.com ventures and let's get to work. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a reminder to check out the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show. In our most recent episode, we're asking, how does the UK avoid a mortgage market meltdown? David Breer is joined by guests from the Mortgage Advice Bureau, Sprive and DigitalCat Consultancy to look at the current turmoil in the UK mortgage market, the potential solutions and what the next six months look like. You can find that podcast wherever you got this one. Let's get back into the news. We've taken this one from CityM. Italian banking giant Mediobanca backs London with a £10.4 million investment in startups. One of Italy's largest investment banks, Mediobanca, has committed €12 million Euros, or £10.4 million to a joint venture with early stage investor Founders Factory to help scale fintech startups. The joint venture will build and invest in 35 fintech businesses over the next five years. Media Banker's investment will help underpin a new fintech venture studio accelerator enabling innovation in financial services by supporting international fintech startups. Its focus will be on ventures that use advanced technologies such as blockchain and AI to innovate in the financial services market. Ollie, thanks for popping in to, to chat about this one with us. Really appreciate it. Um, how did this relationship with Media Banker come about? Who approached who? Sounds a bit like a dating story, but, but not. <laughs> um, right, look, I guess we're always looking to expand the Founders Factory. So the number of corporate partners we're working with and ultimately the goal is how do we build as many and fund as many exciting and incredible startups as we can. So we're always talking to the world's largest companies and exploring the role they can play in the startup ecosystem. And so this partnership came out of one of those discussions with Medio Banker. 
we've been doing a lot of more work internationally recently um, in uh, Milan, obviously, with Medio Banca and Fastweb, a big telco provider in Italy, but also in Berlin, Singapore. And for those that uh, we were talking in the break about Suntans, those that like exotic locations, we have a, a partnership actually in the Bahamas specifically focused on ocean and coastal health, um, which is really exciting. But um, our experience of building these partnerships is really that the most value comes from building network within the markets which our corporate partners operate in to provide unfair advantage for the startups that we then build or invest in. So with this, it made logical sense when we were talking to Mediabanker. We already have fintech um, focused in the UK at the moment. We build a lot of businesses with Aviva. Uh, we also have a partnership with Standard Bank in Africa. So there was a kind of wider fintech network we could build, but also we have an existing corporate partner in Italy out of Milan. So it made sense to expand within Italy as well. And so the, the City AM, brilliant to get some coverage, but I think the lead on Medio Banker back in London is probably not really aligned to strategically what we're doing here. It's really about investing in the Italian ecosystem and to take that, that ecosystem up to the next level by funding and providing support to more and more startups and bringing Medio Banker in with their network and existing kind of um, incumbent influence that they have in the market to bring unfair advantage to startups beyond just capital. So yeah, really excited to get started with Media Bank. They're a company with loads of history and um, a lot that they want to do and a lot they want to change within Italy. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, I think um, I feel like I'm hearing lots of conversations about Italy at the moment. Like it definitely feels like a market that's a lot more under the spotlight. Um, than it has been in recent years, so a, a good time to be be exploring that space for sure. Um, we mentioned obviously in the in the lead end of the story, you know, you've you've come out and said that blockchain and AI will be be focuses. I mean, first is kind of like massive like buzzword bingo scores for for listeners, but you know what what makes a startup an attractive prospect in that space? Like there must be a, a, a lot of a lot of very excitable descriptions, right? But how do you actually identify the ones that are truly exciting? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we've got to start somewhere. So that's probably why why not start with blockchain and AI as kind of an anchor point, I guess. But ultimately, we, we're always looking for opportunities to work with and invest in startups that are building the future. So in this case, and with Mediabank, uh, looking for disruptive fintechs focused on consumer lending, uh, wealth management and investment banking, which are the main areas that Mediabank are kind of have built their capability and, and have a huge right to win. But ultimately, we're very founder-focused at the Founders Factory and with our partners. So we invest in founders who um, share our point of view on the future or vision for the future or emerging technologies we think will be disruptive and change the world. But ultimately, we look for founders who are tackling a massive problem felt very acutely by lots of people and where they have some unique, um, I guess the two things I always look for is a unique product insight. So a unique perspective on how to solve that problem and then a unique market insight into how you're going to distribute and scale. And so, yes, blockchain and AI, we think are still um, massive opportunities and enabling technologies, but we're ultimately looking for founders who are building really exciting things and have an exciting point of view on what the world's going to look like in the future. Yeah, no, I love that um, that kind of two-lens approach. I think quite often people forget about like, the distribution point and, and just get very excited about the idea. But no, I think that's really key to spotlight. Um, Janae, obviously, we're talking about startup accelerators here or kind of investing in, in kind of founders. You know, What is the health of, of that space in the US? I mean, what does startup accelerators in the US look like right now? 
Well, I know that it was severely impacted by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and I know that, you know, Y Combinator, you know, even though they they said that they weren't affected by this collapse, you know, they've kind of pivoted towards, you know, just kind of, you know, early stage startups, which tend to be, you know, cheaper and have a little bit more room to expand compared to late stage funding, which I know that they had been doing in the past. Um, but, you know, like, I think that, you know, you know, with this, like you have, you know, tech, they're following, they're following um, the tech industry where there's a lot of layoffs and there's a lot of focus on, you know, what they're great at. And I know that, you know, accelerators like Y Combinator, they've been really good at like, you know, picking, you know, startups that can really go the distance. And so, you know, it makes sense for them to kind of regroup and, and focus back on what they've, what they've been doing so well, you know, they, what their secret sauce is, you know, that's been keeping them going. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, Benjamin, obviously, when we look at Media Banker itself, like, were you surprised by this? Like, does it was it something you were expecting them to do? I mean, <laughs> I don't suppose I spent lots of time sitting around thinking, what's Media Banker going to do next? But it's not at all surprising. Remember, Media Banker, for, for people who don't know it, is the bank that backs KeyBanker, which is one of Italy's most successful digital banks that was launched back as, as far back as 2008 and has roughly a million customers. So, you know, Media Banker is not a sort of sleepy Milanese merchant bank. It's absolutely tightly connected to particularly Italy's, you know, thriving uh, financial ecosystem. It sits at the heart of Italian finance. It's a very well-respected organization that gets digital at some level, right? So I don't think this is surprising at all. I think it's very, I think it's a very interesting move. Um, you know, Media Banker is a very, very smart investment bank. And, you know, what ultimately what are investment banks meant to do? It's kind of in the name. They're meant to invest in businesses. Um, so I think this is a very logical move. I think it's a very smart move. And, um, you know, Oli, I think, Fantastic. Well done. Um, you know, I think this is really exciting. Yeah. Um, what markets are you also excited about, Ollie, outside of, of Europe? Obviously, you mentioned the Bahamas already. Like, what, what, what else is on the radar from your perspective? I guess markets that are interesting, we're, the, there's a part of Founders Factory that we, we um, built a joint venture in Africa going back quite a few years um, now. Um, Founders Factory Africa is scaling really well. They've um, received a lot of funding from MasterCard very recently to help kind of supercharge that. We still think that market is very, very interesting, both from a fintech perspective, but also from quite a few other kind of opportunities and sectors, amazing kind of entrepreneurial talent base there. And then actually, if you can combine that with corporate scale for distribution and capital, I think there's still a massive opportunity in that market. It's complicated. Um, lots of different uh, kind of nuances by different countries within the continent, but a really big opportunity. Um, and then I think the other area we're looking at actually is kind of forget the borders and forget the kind of, whilst we need to build some kind of presence locally to create networks, actually kind of what are the opportunities to really be more distributed? We as a team at Founders Factory are increasingly distributed. I still think we're really excited by and investing in businesses where they're kind of um, distributed um, from a, uh, how they scale the business and the markets they operate in from day one. So kind of global day one, especially in fintech, that excites me. There's a long way to go. <laughs> so many challenges from a like regulatory perspective and actually some of the technologies uh, required. But I guess if you start to really go for buzzword bingo and kind of combine uh, fully distributed or decentralized with blockchain and AI, it still feels like there's just a huge opportunity within fintech to go kind of much more borderless um, and, and just kind of your customers being 
in different places and all over the world from day one and building a community or customer base in a different way. That's probably one of the areas that excites me the most. And I think it's getting closer to being possible, both from a technology perspective and consumer demand perspective, that we might see a like borderless neobank or fintech within the next kind of five years or so. Buzzword, bingo, a go-go, absolutely. Um, but massive congrats on, on the joint venture and, and looking forward to seeing seeing what the partnership like unlocks. So yeah, congrats again. Okay, moving on to our next story. This one we've taken from BBC News, and that is WorldCoin Sam Altman launches eyeball scanning crypto coin. A cryptocurrency project described as dystopian has been launched by AI entrepreneur Sam Altman. WorldCoin gives people digital coins in exchange for a scan of their eyeballs. On day one of the project's full launch, thousands of people queued to gaze into silver orbs in sites across the world. Altman, the chief executive of OpenAI, which built chatbot ChatGBT, says he hopes the initiative will help confirm if someone is a human or a robot. WorldCoin also claims that its system could pave the way for an AI-funded universal basic income, but it's not quite clear how. Um, Since testing of the scanners began two years ago, WorldCoin says more than 2 million people have been added to the crypto database in 33 different countries. Um, we asked you, the listeners, on 11FS LinkedIn, would you let WorldCoin scan your face for $50 with more than 200 votes? 20% said yes, show me the money. Oh, that was a very poor Tom Cruise impression, apologies. Uh, 80% said no, 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 no. Um, would our panel take $50 for a face scan, Benjamin? Absolutely not. I mean, firstly, I can't imagine anyone being interested in my face. But no, I mean, um, I I think opticians should be the people focusing on eyeball scanning. I I think where I'm coming from on this is when you said eyeball scanning crypto coin, I almost heard you say eyeball scamming crypto coin. I think we've seen a lot of idealistic and well-intentioned crypto-based things. And I think you know, what What exactly is the purpose behind this? What's the real need? Who does this really help? Um, I think people are becoming are skeptical of what exactly is this? Who benefits from this? Why is this needed? What problem does this solve? Um, so for me, no. I, I actually, I think I suppose the other thing is, um, and obviously this is a generational thing a little bit, but have we really understood the danger of continuous monitoring and AI and, you know, the, the dangers of how that information might get misused by bad governments? Um, certainly frightens me. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's, I think we used the word dystopian, right, in, in the intro, and it feels definitely in, the, in, that, in that realm. Um, Ollie, what's, what's your, your take on it? I think it depends what day or like time of the day you'd ask me. I think when I read the notes before, I was like, yeah, $50. Like, I wouldn't take $50 of world coin, uh, but I'd take 50 like, US sterling dollars because I think loads of people have probably got my face. Now, retina scan, probably like different face scan, yeah. I mean, the number of CCTV cameras that I walk past every day kind of thing, everyone's got my face anyway. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. This feels to me like it's a bit of a conflict between sort of the, um, the kind of, core piece of kind of um, creating cryptocurrencies of being kind of decentralized and getting out uh, breaking free of a kind of centralized system and then they're using data to kind of monitor and centralize everything so i guess the vision here is kind of we have every face on the planet so we can kind of make sure you're a human not a robot that feels very centralized so i think it's a bit confused and that might will definitely lead to a struggle for adoption kind of the 
um, the kind of yeah positive vision, I guess, of the decentralization of finance and banking and kind of improving access. But sort of the only way you can achieve it is that we centrally store um, everyone's space. It feels in conflict. And I think, therefore, is it a gimmick to get kind of the, the flywheel started on WorldCoin? Maybe. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of suitably sceptical. But again, I might change my mind later. But. <laughs> well, well, we'll come back to you later to see if you change your mind. Um, Janae, I suppose, yeah, give you a take as well. Like, are you excited by this? Do you think this could take on Bitcoin in terms? Um, you know, I I agree with Ollie. You know, I'm not entirely sure about Worldcoin taking over Bitcoin. Um, in the case of prevalence, you know, I think the uh, major factor of Worldcoin right now is just for them to build trust with consumers about where their biometric information is going. Because you know, at first, if somebody is scanning my eyeball, I'm thinking, okay, well what what is going on with this data where is this going um you know if i don't if i'm not familiar with the company then i may not be really interested in you know even having them have my biometric data um you know and bitcoin wasn't necessarily asking people for their eyeball scans when they first came out let's just be honest um i mean i reading about worldcoin and, and its promises i know like they've said you know things about potentially having universal basic income i mean the use cases are interesting, um, but there are so many tokens in the market right now that you know advertise the ability to do some of the same things um, as what Worldcoin is is saying that they can do. So I feel like it's uh, it might be a little difficult for World for Worldcoin to you know have that dominance that it's looking for. Benjamin, are you excited about universal basic income? I think this whole thing is just a bit bizarre because. Uh, what private organization is going to be providing a universal basic income? I mean, how does that even happen? I, I think, you know, if, if FTX and Sam, um, Sam Bankman-Fried taught us anything, it's to be a bit wary of visionary idealists. So, you know, I'm not saying anything bad about Sam Altman here, but I think people need to be a little bit skeptical about like what exactly is this who benefits from this you know because we do need things like standard digital identity i'm not sure that worldcoin is the solution and i'm not sure that a privately operated scheme is the way forward and i certainly can't see governments um being enthusiastic about something like this so i think this is going nowhere but I'll probably be totally wrong. <laughs> Good thing about recording this is we can we can come back and, and prove it you know, in a couple of years' time, maybe. But Ollie, obviously, you mentioned the previous story. You guys are, are focusing on AI as an area where you kind of want to back. Good innovation, you, as we're talking about here. There's still a lot of fear and anxiety, right? So, how do you balance the fear with the with the innovation? Yeah, I think it's it's an area I'm really excited about actually i think there's loads of opportunity in the kind of second order effects of ai innovation so i'll let sam altman figure out kind of where chat gpt goes next for kind of ai in um automating tasks so that we all don't have to do any work but i think there's like second order effects are super interesting so we recently invested in a startup called calvin risk they help corporates ensure that their ai models haven't gone rogue i think that's kind of really interesting and then I'm looking at the moment trying to engage and find founders who are interested in building insurance products for when AI goes wrong. How might you make an insurance claim because something went wrong with AI or a bad decision was made um, or an accident happened? And then I think there's another idea that I've been kicking around with a few people that I think is interesting around how you might enable banks to verify AI agents. So like in the future, let's say I outsource my day-to-day -day financial management to an AI assistant that just 
books all my travel and pays for everything and pays all my bills um how might banks what what are the opportunities to develop infrastructure startups that say to help banks verify that the ai agent that's saying move money from ollie's account to ollie's other account is actually authorized to act on ollie's behalf and isn't someone else's ai agent that's kind of impersonating the other one so i, I think it gets fascinating on they're quite right it needs to be skepticism sorry and a lot of fear about ai but it might present lots of other opportunities for startups to solve those problems uh, mitigate the risk of um, bad outcomes or maybe even transfer the risk um, in the insurance context of bad outcomes so yeah there's like a whole untapped second set of uh, opportunity i think that comes which excites me but with a suitable level of kind of fear that um, can we develop those capabilities fast enough to react to, to kind of potentially the downsides of kind of just rapid ai kind of progress yeah and i guess janae like we've seen the US regulator, I suppose, sit more on that fierce side right in the moment. So, you know, they're not, despite the fact that it's got American, like an American base or American founder, um, these coins aren't being offered to US citizens. So what, what, where do you think that that stands the US in terms of its approach? You know, do you think other markets will follow the US or is the US kind of going to be an outlier? Well, you know, I know that um, WorldCoin is, is you know, they're still trying to educate people, um, you know, regulators as well as uh, Congress people, senators about, you know, the mission and what they're doing and how how all of this works out. I know that there's a lot of uh, sentiment towards digital assets as a whole right now in Congress. Um, you know, people are just kind of in two different camps on this issue. I think adding biometrics into it is just going to confuse a lot of people. Um, on Capitol Hill. So I think that, you know, it will take some time for the U.S. to kind of embrace this concept. It's taking some time for them to embrace digital assets still. Um, I know that WorldCoin, they are working with other countries. Um, they just recently, I think Germany is is working with them to have this product available in their country. Um, so they're they're working with other countries outside of the United States. But you know, the U.S. is always slow. Um, things take a lot of time. Um, so the U.S. may likely be the last country to adopt this if it if it catches on, you know, around the rest of the world. Yeah, let's uh, let's wait and see. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some of the more clickworthy news this week. Benjamin, what, what have you got for us this week? So we have a story from Engadget, uh, which is that Twitter's CEO is teasing banking and payments plans in a memo about an X rebrand or the X rebrand. So Twitter's rebrand X is officially underway and CEO Linda Yaccarino has offered some new clues about what it may mean for the company. In a memo reported by CNBC, Yaccarino suggested that payments and banking features could feature prominently in Elon Musk's new vision. She wrote... We'll continue to delight our entire community with new experiences in audio, video, messaging, payments, banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services, and opportunities. It's long been rumored that Musk is keen to bring back features to Twitter. Musk is bullish on X's potential and has claimed that the payment integration could become half of the global financial system, or some big number. However, full details of this, of how this might work in practice, remain thin on the ground. So yes, so this is an interesting story. Um, those of you uh, who've been around for a long time or, or know your fintech history will know that Elon Musk was originally the founder of a business called X.com, which merged with a company owned by Peter Thiel, which owned PayPal. And Musk wanted to get um, PayPal renamed as X.com, uh, which apparently went 
down badly in market testing because most people associated an X with pornography rather than a, a friendly payment service. However, um, he's obviously continues to love the brand. And so there's an element of him trying to sort of do what he was trying to do 23 years ago, but also the fabulous success of super apps elsewhere in the world, you know, notably in, in um, across much of Asia, has obviously been part of his strategy in acquiring Twitter and part of his logic. So it's unsurprising to hear Twitter talking about payments because that's clearly been part of Musk's strategy pretty much from the outset of when he decided to buy Twitter. This isn't just about political ambitions. It's about can we use Twitter um, as a, an American, can we turn Twitter into an American super app and challenge Cash App or PayPal or anyone else who might try and get into that position? We've managed to get a super app in as well, but I mean, like buzzwords are just absolutely off the chart today. Top job team. Okay, now it's time for the and finally section of the show, a look at something offbeat or lighthearted from the news this week. We've taken this story from Coindesk, and that is McDonald's opens McNuggets land in the metaverse. But McWhy? McDonald's is celebrating the 40th anniversary of Chicken McNuggets by opening McNuggets land in the metaverse platform for Sandbox. Joining the land of McNuggets, you are greeted with pixelated McNugget characters such as Coach McNugget and his assistant creatively named Assistant Coach McNugget. By playing the game, players can earn rewards including a 100,000 sand shared prize pool, that's the native cryptocurrency of the Sandbox, worth roughly $44,000 apparently, and mystery boxes according to a press release. The experience is spearheaded by the Hong Kong arm of McDonald's and Hong Kong users have the chance to win coupons as well as a big prize, 365 day free chicken McNuggets. Um... Benjamin, obviously, I've profiled you as a massive McNuggets fan. I'm going to come to you first. How excited are you by this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> on a scale of naught to ten, probably somewhere close to naught. But I'm I'm the McWrong person um, because I'm not a big McNugget fan. Um, I, I suppose your serious question is: Does this does this make any sense? I mean, if you've got if you've got people who love your brand in the metaverse, fantastic. Um, but if you haven't, it's just a big waste of money. I'm finding this whole episode really hard because we start off with FedNow, which even though it's obviously a very serious initiative, just makes me think about food. And now we're talking about chicken nuggets. I'm just really struggling. I feel like my stomach is going to like rumble audibly before we get to the end of this. <laughs> um, Janae, is it just me? Like, are, are, you, are you excited for, to go to McNugget land? So I am a McNugget fan. I don't know about you, Benjamin, but I I love them so much. I've I've loved them for a long time, but this is not enticing me to uh, want to go into the sandbox and buy an NFT of a McNugget. I just I I I prefer eating my McNuggets in person, not in the metaverse. Yeah, I'm wondering. Like, I don't know if like Coach <laughs> is Coach McNugget like actually a actually a chicken nugget like with legs or something like or is it like a person because I feel like if I was in a McNugget metaverse just looking at lots of nuggets dancing around me I would just be even hungrier and even more frustrated that can I've been yeah. I've been informed by the producers that he is a nugget um so yeah this is just confirmed I'm not going into this into this metaverse just to be taunted by nuggets that I can't I can't eat because I agree I'm also also a nugget nugget fan Ollie are you are you considering going into the metaverse with or without nuggets I'm uh, definitely a Nugget fan, for sure, lifetime Nugget fan. Um, so I'm with you there. I, uh, I, but I think I've got even less willpower. Like if I saw the golden arches in the metaverse, you know, if I'm in some kind of 
game or I'm in some kind of metaverse environment, I see that I'm just going to get hungry. And I don't yet, I haven't yet seen a solution for hunger that's not like a real life solution. So maybe if someone can create a hunger kind of uh, some way of solving the hunger problem digitally within the metaverse, it kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm there, but otherwise I'm just going to see the golden arches and then log off or exit. Uh, I'm showing my lack of metaverse usage. Uh, leave the metaverse into the real world to be hungry and try and kind of serve that hunger. So uh, yeah, it's going to sell more. It's going to, I'm going to buy more McNuggets if I was in the metaverse and I saw it, but I'm not going to stay in the metaverse. Ollie, can, Maybe it does work. Can I suggest that you you switch your attention at Founders Factory from fintech to 3D printing? And maybe you can, you know, drive some advances in 3D printing. So as well as printing plastics and resins, you know, 3D printers can start printing, you know, liquid, liquefied chicken. That's a good idea. I mean, maybe I could, I could actually have the McNuggets like at my desk at that point in time. But we're, we're investing so much time time and, and money at Founders Factory to try and solve kind of health problems that I, I'm massively <laughs> conflicted on. The, the, the nugget kind they're, of, very, um, they're very high increased nutritional increased value. Consumption, yeah, yeah. so yeah. Yes. It's a difficult, yeah. difficult balancing act. Um, okay, question to, to round us off. Um, Benjamin, I'll come to you first because I suspect the answer is not nuggets. But if you could win a year's supply of food from any brand... What would it be, Benjamin? Well, I was thinking of something like HelloFresh, which provides sort of recipe oh, boxes on. in the UK. That's but... far too, that's tar- far too holier than thou. It's not fun. You know, <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I get teased in the office because I eat a lot of fresh fruit. And, and so I would actually want food from my local farm shop because I'm lucky enough to live in the countryside. <laughs> so actually, that's actually what I'd want. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you're now banned from the show. You're not allowed back. Um, Ollie, what about you? Uh, brand, you said, didn't you? Let, so, so I probably have to go with Walkers, kind of one of the biggest. Chris, I'm just a crisp person. I just can't go like really a day without a bag of crisps. It's my go-to snack. So, lifetime supply of Walkers. I guess if I can have that macro brand, then I get loads of choice. Yeah, I'd I like very, it. I'd be very happy with that. Strategic move. I respect that. Um, Janae, what about you? Pizza, of course. You've got to pick a brand, though. That was it. You've got a specific um, type of pizza, well, right? Because like, so, that's quite difficult because there's so many different types of pizza. Like, just there's pick so one many brand. different types. Hmm. I don't, well, I don't know what you guys have in the UK. Oh, no. If we have a global audience, you, guys have everything. You, can, you, can, oh, you, can, okay. you can pick an American brand. Hmm. I would pick uh, Giordano's based out of Chicago. So good. It's like a pizza Is it cake. one of those like really deep, deep bad boys? Okay. Really deep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Super I'm deep dish. I'm going to go now. Um, they're so tasty. I think my if there's anyone from Medio Banker listening, they will be absolutely disgusted by Sorry. the suggestion of a deep pan. <laughs> Sorry, Italians. But, so I'm just representing <laughs> Italians to say um, uh, just uh, disagree. Politely. Smart, smart. I think my unsurprisingly to anyone who probably works at Eleven Affairs, I think my brand would probably be Nando's. I am so good. I'm a big, big Nando's fan. Um, yeah, and you can. It doesn't doesn't isn't all chicken. You know they do other things. I mean, I'm not advertising Nando's here, obviously. I mean, I kind of am, I suppose. But um, yeah, big, big, big Nando's fan. In my pre fintech career, I did actually do some some customer research work for for Nando's, um, and I I just went on so aggressively about how big a fan I was of Nando's that the client I was working for like gave me a, a Nando's voucher for my birthday. I think for like a hundred pounds which actually anyone who's been to Nando's will know that like that's actually quite a lot of money to spend in Nando's. It's actually quite hard to spend that much money in Nando's. And I suspect they'd imagined... Did you have to do it 
in one sitting? Well, no. Or could you spend it over multiple I sittings? That's probably it, right? Like, I suspect the idea was that it was meant to be multiple <laughs> multiple things, but I just went with, just went and had a massive meal with my husband. So it was it was actually quite traumatic to have that much Nando's in one, in one meal. But um, anyhow, so I think that's probably that's probably enough enough for today. That comes to the end of the show. Um, thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Benjamin? Well, in the unlikely event that somebody actually wants to know more about me, uh, you can find me on Benjamin Enser on LinkedIn. Uh, but you can find out more about the work that we do uh, as a team at 11fs.com. Awesome. Uh, Janae, what about you? Um, you can find me on X at Janae EO. And my organization is progresschamber.org. Awesome. Go check it out. And Ollie, what about you? Yeah, people can find me on LinkedIn, Ollie Betts on X, Betts Ollie. Um, yeah, and if you want to meet in real life, we're at 180 Strand in London. You can always drop by meet some of our founders, meet some of the team and uh, share your ideas. And by the sounds, it brings some nuggets. So that will, that will, that will get you in the door for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and as for me, um, I'm on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn, or you can drop me an email, kate at alonefest.com, um, especially if you work for Nando's and have out just to give me a so. Uh, please do um, thank you so much for listening you can join the conversation on social media or email podcast at alonefairs.com thanks very much goodbye 